Hi guys, welcome to episode number 49 of the journey of self-love through self-care. My name is Amy Mercado and I am the owner and creator of my brand, The Mercado Method, where I teach a variety of online fitness and yoga classes. And today I have the most epic, excitable ball of energy on my show because I'm super, super excited. This is Afshan Sheikh and me and Af met at a mutual friend's wedding in a penthouse as you do um sweet before they was getting married and we just sort of we, we briefly sort of connected i was like i really like this girl's vibe and i felt like you felt the same and i was late standardly and then we didn't really get to socialize after that and then the other week i was at a mutual friends of ours and we did like a plant medicine trip and we sort of bonded super super as far as i'm concerned like avengers kind of bonding <laughs> <laughs> I asked Ash if she would come on the show today and just, I want to know more about you, babe. Like I, from what I've seen, your energy is amazing and I'm just super intrigued. Who are you? And like, yeah, let's just bounce and share some of this, this energy. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Amy. What an introduction. And I'm very happy to be here on your podcast, representing an element of what you do. Um, I think self-healing, self-care self-development or shadow work as we call it in the normal you know realm of world uh, is very important and um i find that i'm attracting a lot of people that are as woke or as much doing the work as much as i am so i'm starting to meet people where i'm at and where they're at and actually what i'm finding is people that i'm attracting like your lovely self they're presenting themselves to me as people that have done work and it's evident and I can notice that from their frequency. So something that's really important for me um, is getting you an understanding as to where I'm from, what I do, how have I got here to be who I am today and why is it we've attracted each other? Because let's face it, there's romantic interest and then there's interest, interest and you are definitely giving me interest, interest. So let's talk about interest. We could even talk about compounding that interest, but that's a different conversation, maybe a different time. But I am um, 34 years old. Um, I've got a heritage that's quite interesting. I'm British born to third generation of Pakistanis, Indians and Iranians. Um, my family mix uh, sort of heritage starts from um, India, Pakistan and Iran. My family migrated to Kenya, Africa, which I actually grew up uh, for some of my childhood there. Got to experience a lot of amazing things, which I think actually adds to who I am today. Um, and then my parents got married uh, for an arranged marriage because I'm Muslim by heritage and background. I am a practicing Muslim as well. Um, I'm not extreme, but that's again a different, you can get into that as well. Um, and then I was born in England when my parents um, both migrated here then they met each other in England, even though they're both from Kenya and the families got them married. So I started my life in England, in Battersea, South London, big up South if you're from South, always. And um, my journey has been quite interesting. So I was born here, my parents were living in like an estate, West Anglia estate with their, my mum's mum. And I was the first baby girl in the family. And my mum had three brothers and my dad's got like seven siblings. So I was very much loved and doted on all the time. Like people didn't put me down. Even till today, when I talk to my uncles, they're like, 
you were probably the most loved child in the whole family. Like people couldn't believe that my mum had given birth at like 18 and then I have appeared and I've got all this hair, obviously. And, you know, everybody was a little bit besotted with me is the impression that my family's given me. And my nan, who's not with me anymore, I never got to meet her as an adult. She passed away when I was two from cancer, bless her. Love you, nan. Um, <clears throat> my nan loved me a lot and used to make outfits for me and like carry me around like a dolly and it was a huge deal in the family. So I come from a place of love. That's really important to know. Um, maybe that makes a bit more sense now that you know me. <laughs> so yeah, I was brought up with a lot of love. My parents then moved on to North of England. They bought a premises that had a uh, off license on it. My mum then had a second child and my parents ran a shop for like three years. Um, in that time, they also had a presence in Kenya still. And so we traveled quite a lot between England and Africa. Um, and then in 1992, we actually moved to Kenya for two years. Uh, my parents very cleverly started uh, an import business. So what they used to do is take the stock from our shops, our off licenses, everything that was going out of date, they shipped it over to Africa and resold it basically because English products were not known in Africa. So what they were doing, their USP, if you like, was we're bringing you goods from across the seas that you would never be able to get hold of. So these African clubs, off licenses, kiosks, stores, you know, supermarkets would buy from my parents, things like Colgate toothpaste and Stella Artois, you know, out of date Stella, because they, they just thought the froth was like extra added drunkenness, I guess, or like a higher volume of percentage of alcohol. Anyway, my parents made a lot of success by doing that. Um, and eventually created a lot of, you know, income for themselves and moved back to England and we bought properties. And that's how my parents sort of started. Um, that led me to getting an understanding of business quite quickly. So I remember like my parents' home in Kenya being like a workshop with crates, a cleaning process, a repackaging process. And there were three people doing this like every night, seven days a week. So me and my brother would be like walking into a workshop almost just playing with whatever was there and then, you know, watching them do their thing, if you like. Um, so I had a really good understanding of like what's going on in the world of business, create demand and supply, how that works. I'm, I'm like four years old at this time and I kind of got it. Um, but that also, you know, live in Africa also gave me an insight into poverty, which I don't think is spoken about enough. Uh, I know generically speaking, we talk about poverty for charity's sake or, you know, when the new uh, government releases a bill, and we talk about how that, you know, bill might not help the homeless or how is this helping food banks? And we understand poverty at that level in our country. But what I've seen and experienced myself in Africa is nothing I don't think anyone's experienced. So I'll give you an idea. We celebrate birthdays here in this country and everywhere. We celebrate birthdays with a present. Okay, and we have pies and we spend on ourselves on dresses and we do all this stuff. One of my most humbling experiences was this. I was turning five. Um, I was in Africa with my mum. Didn't even know it was my birthday until my mum says to me, come to the kiosk with me. Now the kiosk is like a mile down the road. The road is made out of orange sand because that's how fertile the land is. Like the land is all red and orange. We're walking down this road and holding my mum's hand. She's singing, we're both singing along. We get to the kiosk and my mum looks at the kiosk guy and she goes, Coconut keke which means Coke and cake. 
And I've just heard the word cake. I haven't eaten cake at this point for about a year. Look at my mum and I'm like, did you just say cake? She's like, she like calm down. And I'm like, okay, sorry. So she gets the Coke and she gets the cake, Coke in a glass bottle and she gets this cake and she sits me down on the side of the road. And then she starts singing, happy birthday. And I am like, what's going on? Why are you singing happy birthday? And she's like, today, darling, is your birthday. And I've brought you a cake to celebrate your birthday. And my immediate response was half the cake and gave half to my mum. And she was overwhelmed with that. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just sharing the love, basically. And we shared this cake and we shared the Coke. And then we walked back a mile to the house. And that was it. Like, that was it. There was no banner. There was no dresses. There's no parties. Like, that to me was one of my most important memories of my childhood. Because for one minute... I just felt like the most important person in the world. And my mum made me feel like that with the little money she had at the time, because we didn't do the import export then, she donated that to me. And I knew how much that meant because we hadn't eaten cake, chocolate sweets for, for about a year. You don't have a lot of that in Kenya. You do, but you know, it's a treat. So that was an epic moment. Um, me understanding that these things are luxury and when I was leaving the complex, when we made money and stuff like that, I had made obviously a community of friends there. And my friends, I'm talking families of like 13 children. One family had like seven, another one had 13, another one had two. And they called all their kids like biblical names like Mary and Joseph and like Peter and Michael and things like that. It's really beautiful. So I'm leaving the complex. Like there's a massive complex we lived on, like a house that was converted into four flats and my parents and my family had one. And we're leaving and I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's going on. I just know we're packing things up. Anyway, my dad turns up with this big sprinter van that we've got and he's like really angry in the yard. And he's like, right, everyone get in the van. And we're like, what? He's like, everyone get in the van. All these kids, me included, my mouth is shut and I'm crapping my pants. So I'm now walking into this van, holding the, my best friend's hands, two of them. We're all sitting down in the back of this massive like Mercedes sprinter van, it's huge. There's about 25 kids in there and my parents are sitting in the front. They're not talking to us though. We're like, what's going on? Loads of suspense, right, on the journey. So the van stops and now we're all like, they're holding hands even more scared because the van stopped and we're like, what's going on? What's going on? My parents absolutely smashed it. These kids have never seen what they're about to see. My mum and dad opened the back doors. My dad has parked the car, the van, so the back doors open out to a swimming pool to our new home, all of us get out of the, the all, we just all run into the water with our clothes on. These are kids that have never seen or been in a swimming pool in their life. And we're just there having the biggest party you've ever seen. It was the most magical experience. And so being brought up with that level of, of awareness, that level of uh, respect and understanding around what poverty means to people gave me a really good standing in my life because it also broke a paradigm around racism. So I had no idea what racism was. I didn't know what it was to be rich or poor until these experiences happened to me in Kenya. So bringing those kids there and giving them that day of joy was, I'm sure all of them still remember that because I do. And it was those kinds of um, gestures of, as humans that I saw my parents do. They didn't have to. They did that out of love. So I gained from that I'm I'm in I'm emanating what I've received through my life from that from that start so that 
is to me a huge deal. Like that's a huge deal to understand, wow, we're so lucky to have all this stuff and like, we don't even know what it's for. And we've got all these celebrations, all this luxury around us. There's people in the world that have never seen what we're seeing, experiencing, never tasted what we've tasted, heard what we've heard. And yet we're experiencing all of that. So I felt very privileged, very, very, very privileged, not because of the color of my skin, all the money that my family made, but because of the human gestures that I'd seen from the age of four, five, six. So that wasn't, that's, you know, a really deep welcome to me because that is who and where I started from. Um, so yeah, that's that's my background and where I, I started. Wow. <laughs> wow. I've got like some questions that my brain's just like still like processing. Please. <laughs> So first of all, I'm curious, like you said, like your parents were in an arranged marriage. Yeah. And what was the love like between them? Yeah, so they courted. Um, so my dad was introduced to my mum and my mum's um, mother and father, my mum's mum at the time was diagnosed with cancer, which was quite bad. So my mum's dad, my granddad, bless him, love him so much. It's because of him I've got this hair. So. My granddad with that a little Iranian streak in him, he um he courted. Uh, he allowed my parents to court basically for six months. And he also courted my nan. My nan and granddad from my mum's side had a love marriage, which is unusual. He he met her, he fell in love with her, he asked for permission to see her. My dad met my mum through family and then wanted to continue to see her. So they were allowed six months of courting, that courtship. Um, and in that time, my dad was working and he'd come back and see my mom. And I think their bond sort of started from there. Like she was really like appreciative of this guy and she knew she was doing it to make sure her family, like her dad knew he'd done the right thing. I think there's quite a lot of pressure at that point when you're 17 and your parents are, are, are introducing to someone for the sake of your survival is quite deep like that's quite a lot to manage at 17 cerebrally like cerebrally like or consciously I don't know if she understood what was going on but their bond started like that and then she'd watch him go to work and she would be at home and you know he got to meet their family and my nan was quite inviting of him and my nan and my mum's mum and my, my dad got on really really well they're both tourists so they just kind of got on really well um so yeah so that's how it started for them and then the marriage happened because they needed to get married quickly because my my nan was actually ill <clears throat> and then I came along within about three months like she was pregnant immediately and so she, that's how their bond and she, started and this love just and she was just ready to be like she just gave you that love Especially yeah, and to be that young and just to be so loving and just to accept this is like this is my baby yeah, she prayed for a girl. Everybody in our Asian society and communities and all my Asian, Indian, Pakistanis out there, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. Everybody wants you to have a boy first. My mum, my mum is so unique. My mum sat there and prayed to God every night. Please make her a girl. Please make her a girl. This is the days you don't know the sex of your baby. You can't tell. She's just there like, please make sure she's a girl. And the whole family's praying for a boy like my dad's side was anyway. So when I came out as a girl, she fell in love. Like my mom was besotted with me. She was like, oh my God, God's like answered my prayers and I've got a baby girl. And it was a really big deal for my mom to have a girl first, which is a total break of the paradigm and the social norms um, from that era. So yeah, it was a big deal. 
she knew what she wanted and she manifested yeah. you. Literally. <laughs> um, and it's so interesting with the whole business thing as well, like seeing that and then allowing it to sort of develop. And what was really interesting, I find like I really struggled to remember before maybe the age of six, but to have such prominent like, memories and just, and I was feeling like maybe it's where you've just received something so that you wasn't used to having, that it's just, it's created that memory of joy and, and love in you. Like to yeah. be able to, to recall that and to, to have such a powerful recollection. Yeah, I think like it's, it's taken me time to articulate to you the way that I do, because as you grow up, and I'm sure everybody's experienced this, but what you thought you knew, you don't actually know, like you ain't got a clue. And you realize what you know for experience. Um, so when I had issues in my teenage years, like people being racist with me, calling me Afghan or Afshan on purpose, mm. making me upset, calling me a monkey. Like I came back from Africa, I was obviously massively tanned. I naturally tanned really well. And I started to go to school in an area called Carshalton. Um, <clears throat> and it was a predominantly white area. And I was getting racist abuse at school, but I did not know about it. I just thought them calling me a monkey was like a term of endearment or something. It was hilarious to me. Until my mum's getting called in to school and I'm seeing my mum at like 11 o'clock in the office. I'm like, mum, what are you doing here? She's like, we, my, your teacher's called me. And I'm like, okay. And they're basically telling my mum, your daughter's, you know, been bullied and people are calling her names and, you know, we're worried about her. And my mum's like, she's not said anything to me. And I'm like, mum, I don't even know what they're talking about because to me, name calling like that didn't mean anything. I just thought they were being kids. What's the problem calling someone a monkey? Why is that racist? Like, that's cool. Like, you want to be a monkey? I'll call you giraffe. In my brain at the time, I just thought it was normal until I'm meeting an authoritarian figure with my mum who were then sitting there profiling me at the age of six years old to come back from Kenya. And they're like, how do you feel? And I'm like, I feel great. And they're like, okay, are you upset? And I'm like, no, like, why would I be upset? And they're like, because they're calling you a monkey. And I'm like, so what? To me, it, I never knew this is racism. I had no idea. And, you know, later on, my parents are telling me we used to get petrol bombs through our door living in that area. Um, a lot of sabotage, like slashing my, my family's tires of their vehicles, like a lot of stuff happened to us that I was pretty much protected from because I just, my mum just always loved us. She never made me feel any negatives. Like I never knew what was happening. And my disposition at school was totally like, I'm here to have fun and learn. Like, I don't even care what these people, I don't care. It didn't matter to me getting acceptance from these kids because I'd just been on an adventure of my lifetime. I've been in Africa, like doing jungle and you know, I've met zebras and I've done some amazing stuff. So by the time I logged up in England, this tiny little thing, to me, it was tiny. Someone calling me a monkey. I was like, that's great. Why is that a problem? But that is something I'm not, I've been conditioned to understand as I grew. So when I meet people that still harbor racism and they still bully, you know, people that still have this aggressive streak about them, whether it's PC or not, I empathize with them a lot. And I think, wow, you didn't have the experience that I've had with said African people. Like all I've ever known for like that two years before I met these kids in the playground is love from African children who used to revere us like and celebrate that we were there with them in their school and love to learn English from us. And we had a totally different experience. So things like racism and being bullied, 
didn't really come into my world at all until I came to England and I'm being given these titles and these labels and these boxes for me to understand what this concept is. And it just didn't compute very well for me. I was just like, ducks up all was back, didn't really matter to me. So as I've grown up and come across more, <laughs> like more examples of racism, Black Lives Matter, I recall my own experiences. And I think for me, a funny story, you know, for you to maybe understand is like, on the Black Lives Matter subjects, I was called by my HR in my old job. And she wanted to ask me what my opinion was on Black Lives Matter. And I said, Julie, you know I'm not black, don't you? She did not know my heritage. And she called me up to see if I was all right about this narrative. True story. So you got to think like, I don't know, I think I've been breaking mold since I was a kid. Like, I don't get it. Like, yeah, like, I'm not going to sit here and just wipe over the podcast and say everything's just coming from a place of love. It's not, you need to know how to tap into that. Hence, when I say to you, tap into your frequency, mind your frequency, this is all related. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, like, me and my brother grew up in, it was pretty much all white school and we were Jewish but we yeah. didn't know anything about our heritage. Like both our parents were Jewish and my mum had gone through losing her mum, which broke her heart. So then anything to do with religion had sort of gone like, that doesn't exist because why would God take my mum away from me? So, and, my, and my dad was just a gearhead and a playboy, like doing all his things. So he was like, he wasn't interested in his stuff. So going into a school that was white Christian Catholic, like I had big, like I've naturally got big curly hair and, my bum always was bigger and but I think that's the horse road. Yeah. And, and, I, and I was ashamed. Like people were like, why is your hair curly? Why is your bum stick out? Like, why have yeah. you got... So I looked, even though we were white, we still, like, you could tell there was something slightly different about us. And you were cultured. You're definitely yeah. cultured, yeah. And as soon as people would find out you're Jewish, like the fear that would come in, because I didn't even understand what that even meant because we hadn't been brought up with it to even know. And it was almost like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I am. So it was like, we grew up in this sort of fear factor of certain things. So it's so interesting to sort of hear it. And it wasn't until I went to Israel, I was just surrounded by loads of Jewish people. And I'm like, wow. oh, it's, it's, I don't give a shit if people know if I'm Jewish or not. Like, wow. and, and I think can we like, just say like, even what we're doing now, this could never have happened like 20, 30, 50 years ago. Like no. you'd never find a Muslim talking to a Jew underneath the politics of the world and the wars that we've gone through. And even to the current day age and space that we are seeing Israelites and Palestinians go through at the moment. Like there was such a segregation, but before that there was a love between Muslims and Jews and Christians and we all lived in harmony. So, it's very, to me, it's very um, warming to, to know that we are, we're, we're, we're doing it now. We're breaking a, we're breaking a mold. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky Like some of my best friends are Muslim, like Muslim Pakistani and like, are, like we're like family. And yeah. I went to Israel to sort of be around loads of Jewish people, but then seeing people walking around with guns and then they took us to, um, we went and had a talk with like, we went and camped out with the Bedouins, which was amazing. Oh! And the next day they took us to where like the wars like the, the bits were going on and these women come and meet us in secret and they was like we shouldn't be here but it was like well it's an eye for an eye so if you shoot one of ours we'll come out after one of yours and then I asked the question I said well well does that mean it ends 
And she was like, no, but then if you shoot one of ours back, then we, and I'm like, but it doesn't make sense because then it's just, it's almost like tit for tat. Like the wow. big- Wow. And how like, old were you, can I ask? This was when I was 21, 21. Wow. And basically there's a, there's a charity called Birthright and my cousin had told me about it because all my cousins had grown up in like Gants Hill and it's a very Jewish area, but we'd grown up uh, Elm Park, which was again, very like white Christian Catholic. So mm. I wasn't really around my cousins a lot. So it was like a different world and they had a lot of money growing up and we'd gone through bankruptcy and, and stuff like that. So we had like, so, I, and they'd had stuff like, I remember going to a party and they was all wearing Tiffany. And I remember going to them, I'm like, what is that? And she was like, oh, it's a certain brand of, of, and it was almost like, because they had that, they were part of the clique. But when I went to Israel and just being around everyone that was Jewish and being in that energy, because the the charity allowed you to go to learn a bit about your heritage and a bit about culture and the stories behind it and trying to, wow. and to be around like Israeli soldiers, like you have to go in the army, Like there is no choice. Like you're going in there, you can't leave, you can't escape it. And I was like, the gratitude I had for also not having to go through that. And they took us to like the burial site where they've had to bury their own friends and stuff at, at my age. And, and I was just like, this is fucking nuts. Like this, this doesn't make sense. So when I came back, I was like, so what if I'm Jewish? Like, so what if, if it doesn't mean I'm less or more yeah. of a person, it's yeah. just, I'm excited. I want to find out more. What does that mean? Or not that I want to necessarily give it a label, but mm. I'm curious about the traditions and I love the fact that I didn't know. They said, oh, what do you normally do on a Friday night? So I was always working two or three jobs. And then, um, well, Friday night for me, I was either down the pub getting pissed or finishing a shift or going, you know, so I'd either be working or drinking. And I was like, what do you guys do? And I was like, well, Friday night's sacred. So you should be no electricity and with your family and it's Shabbat. And I remember phoning my friend, I said, oh my God, like this, it was so embarrassed. But don't worry, you're more Jewish than the rest of them if you're making money on a Friday night. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> and this is what I was going to ask you, because like, you know, like in your, like traditionally in your religion, like there's no alcohol, right? Correct. But then ultimately when you said there was growing the business, there was utilizing alcohol to create the empire. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Was, when I was listening, I was like, it's so mental when we actually look at what? I think, yeah, I think it's like, I think it's, okay, so for me, like, understanding, so having knowledge is very important about the subject matter you were about to discuss, right? So my advice to anybody listening to this podcast or to us talking, do not enter a debate if you do not have the knowledge to back it. You are going to get much more respect out of the party that you're talking to by going, actually, I don't know anything about this. Why don't you just tell me? So I will enter the debate with you because I do have some knowledge, luckily. So two things to separate there. Our religion as Muslims and maybe Christians and Jews as well, I'm gonna speak for this element of what I represent. You know, I'm, I'm here for all religions, but I will speak about what I know most. So the reason that alcohol is denied or, you know, classed as haram or bad, or you should not do it, is because one, it's an intoxicant. Mm. So when people were given the prayer, so you need to pray this type of prayer five times a day, what was happening in the nation of Islam at the time when the prophet had gone to Medina to create Islam and you know he was given the message that this is a religion you're gonna bring forward. The rule about alcohol came much later and this is why. So Muhammad didn't rock up, peace be upon him, 
and say, right, all alcohol is off, bans. That's not what happened. Like things like wine were heavily in flow. That's what everybody drank, whether you were like 12 or 45, like everybody just drank wine. It was normal. The effect of that wine was noticed when people were turning up to do their prayer and were forgetting their words and their actions. Key points, words and actions, cognitively and physically speaking, okay? So God is watching and he's going, you know, I'll allow you three occasions, he allowed it. On the third occasion, the rule is given, you cannot have alcohol because you are incoherent upon your duty. So the first thing that's given to us is the responsibility and the value of why we pray. Like why are we now suddenly buying our heads down to a direction and the sky when I've been used to worshiping an idol? That's a whole thing that had to be broken down. Once that had happened and people accepted the physical prayer and the words behind that, those words and that fashion of your prayer is to rejuvenate you and ground you. If you do yoga and you see a Muslim prayer, if you're, 10 pence to intelligent you're gonna go wow that's mountain pose or like that's nearly child's pose that position like it's all about grounding the main chakras to the ground so when people are talking about islam alcohol for example we can talk about islam and how yoga practices feature in our prayer this is my opinion of it because i do yoga and i pray so it's a grounding thing. So alcohol being prohibited is because it's trying to get the human being to manage themselves and become aware of this thing's going to impact my behavior and my actions. So that's that's why we weren't allowed to have alcohol from the originality of it. Now, let's move into 2022. Let's move into 1999. Let's move into 1990. Alcohol, food, shampoo, conditioner, for my parents was a commodity. They didn't drink alcohol, but they came to a country where people did. So there is a demand for it. I'm talking business now. So you in a country where the predominant thing that people do on a Friday is go to the pub and get drunk or buy loads of wine, take it home and have a meal with their family and get drunk or get their mates around and get on like, you know, all this Lamborghini or whatever, whatever it was called, I don't know. But people just want to drink. It's their habit, it's the fashion, it's the culture leaning back into what we're talking about earlier, it's a culture. So my parents have come, they come to do business. So technically speaking, if there's a demand for something and they've just bought a premises that offers, offers that, what does that mean for their business? It means they're gonna make a lot of money. So they weren't conditioned as much as I am. My parents did not have parents that I've got who were on them as a religious, you know, this is what the Iranic term actually means. Nowadays, if you're a Muslim, you'll read a surah from the Quran and you will try and break that down into what does that mean for us today? What does that mean in English to me and my language? What does that mean to me? What, why, why is this rule given or why did that experience of the prophet get noted in the Quran? Because let's face it, that book's been going way longer than any of us have. So when it came to work, I guess my parents are thinking, okay, there's an opportunity here. And for them and their mentality, not being as you know um, learned about the values of Islam, the face of it they knew, but they didn't understand the depth of it. They were literally doing what is required for them to do their job by running the shop. And the demand heavily relied on alcohol because of the country and the culture that we were in. So they continued to make money from that. It wasn't predominantly alcohol. Obviously we sold food and other products, but that to them was a survival. So my dad was an Arctic lorry driver while my mum was pregnant with me. He did that for like, you know, nine months. 
He made a lot of money, he took that money. He went up north, he bought a shop and a house. Then it started from there with traveling to Africa and export. So we never used it to abuse. We didn't use it to manipulate. We literally were just trying to survive as a family. And we did. And of course, that business venture of theirs, like having shops off license stuff, that all stopped. And they went into interior design and property maintenance and creating, you know, assets for themselves and going around like fixing people's houses and giving advice and stuff like that. So there was a great evolution. The starting point involving alcohol to me doesn't really matter because they didn't use it for themselves and it didn't impact their behavior. So they're not abusing it in that way. Do you know what I mean? Islamically, is it right for you to sell alcohol as a Muslim? Of course not. Of course not. Every Muslim listening to this podcast, don't think I'm endorsing that. I'm just saying it was a way of survival in those days. And if you have people and, you know, your family from the 80s, we literally came here to survive. So, yeah, that's amazing. It was just curious. So it's just like we've had to like you said, break paradigms in order to keep stepping up. Because if we'd have kept following the rules and stayed in the box, we yeah, able to be where we are at today. Completely and right. It's mad because you think, I took my mum to see Elvis um, the other month. Oh, lovely. And I was like, they weren't even allowed to dance. It was yep. like, as a woman, to stand up and shake your body like that, like, you know, frowned upon when I was watching, I busted with, yeah, we all just keep going with what is right or what is wrong based on the, these supposed rules that have been passed down to us. We would be living in a very different society. Different world. I think the world is relying on people to break norms and old cultures, old patterns, old behaviors. We're in an age of like new and I'm very, you know, I'm very um, aware of what I represent and I'm very aware of what I'm about to do with that and how that can come across to the rest of the world. So, you know, it's on us basically to call it. And a lot of times there's people in the world who, I'm, I'm happy that I don't have a lot of these people in my life left because they organically leave and that's great. But like I said at the start of the podcast, I'm resonating with people that are on a mad frequency. And when I meet them, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm like breathtaking. And they're breathtaking with me. And I'm like, no, 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 bro, this is on you. And they're like, no, 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 it's on you. And I'm like, wow. But the difference is I'm never going to not call bullshit. Whether that's at work, in friendship circles, in a relationship, on the, on the road, in the traffic, wherever, whatever, in an airport. I've done this before as well. Like, I'm always going to call out the bullshit because it why is it what because a normal person if you're a human being from a child you ask the question why about 30,000 times a day as a child why do we forget to do that now why are we so comfortable in the conditioning that we've been given not to ask why anymore because what that's doing is making people like me and you who are asking the why oh we're thinking outside the box see this box mate I'm about to break the fuck out of this box man and I'm taking every motherfucker with me because these boxes, they do not exist. They only exist by your admission of admitting they exist. So please understand that. Yeah. Colors. Why, why are we told there's like 55 colors or some shit, bro? There are so many colors and not even named yet, but we only are operating from a space of what we're told to know and believe that we ain't in that space no more. 
We are not in that space no more. There is a higher collective conscious that is forming, whether that's from my yogic group, whether that's from my dream catchers gang, which you feature in now, whether that's from my work colleagues and peers, whether that's from my old colleagues, whether that's from my neighborhood, like my neighbors that I've got around me, we are all here. And like I said, I'm attracting crazy, mad, great people like you into my life randomly, but it's because we're coming at it from a higher level frequency where we're not looking to be conditioned and programmed anymore. We are noticing we are being boxed, labeled, put into cohorts. Who, who the fuck are you lot to be labeling me or putting me in a box? I don't even know what the box is. Why am I in the box? Same like when I had racism, when I was like four, five, six in this country, what are you talking about? What is racism? Why does that even exist here? Why doesn't it exist over there? Why are African people not aware of what racism is? But you lot in England are. What's the agenda? What's your narrative of your governments? Who are you really following here? It's on us to ask these questions. You know what I mean? It's on us. And I'm very happy to do that for the rest of my life until I die and long may I live. Because you need people like us to challenge the norm, you know? When, because um, obviously you've come from this place of love, so you're just, and even when this was happening at school, did you, do you feel that because you've come from so much love, it's almost like you've got this, like we're talking about frequency, like do you feel like where you just give off this frequency, things just bring <laughs> back to other people and they're just like, you're just like, what? And just carrying on. Did it get to the, like, did it ever sort of, did it get to the point where maybe it made your frequency even stronger to like be like, oh, I didn't even fucking notice that. Like, don't know what that is or I don't care or um yeah I think there's a power in becoming aware that you are emanating love and um yeah I definitely do feel like it's armor it's so interesting that you say the word armor I'm trying to control my reaction right now um so what I'm where I'm at with it is like I know I put a coat of armor on every day and I do that through prayer so when I do my prayers in the morning or in the evening, it's like I am removing all the energy and the deeds that I've done and the actions that I've done. And I'm replenishing myself with this brand new coat of armor. It's like I can't be penetrated. I just cannot be penetrated by anything else. So that's my first note of knowledge or, you know, how it applies to me. Um, I feel the coat of armor is a very important thing to me. I've spoken about it with my friends. Um, and I use my prayer as my everyday armor, if you like, before I go into the world. Um, I use my love as an armor. I mean, that's so cool. Like, I'm just computing that in my brain. Sorry, but the, the way you've put that to me is so good that it's making me double think about it. Yeah, love is a shield, man. As much as it is a connector, a conductor, love is almost a shield because you will recognize people that are not or don't have love because you have the love and how they respond and react to you is normally is normally negatively actually it's normally it's not not like how I've been received with my people like I'm very blessed to have the links relationships the evolution of my community the way it's happened because it is someone looks at me with an eye like and is like in awe or in love or like oh like wowed but oftentimes when you emanate love it can threaten people and it can scare them. And in relationships, I've seen this, like, you know, you fall in love with a guy, you think you know what love is. The guy has never been loved in his life. And so when you're turning up with all of this grand, you know, expression, this weight of like, you know, 
it's heavy on them. It's very heavy on them to receive it. And, you know, I've got past relationships, my marriage, for example, where I bought my husband a tie to say congratulations on your promotion. And he absolutely freaked out because no one in his whole life had ever done that for him. And he just didn't know how to receive it. How do you handle that? How do, how do you, as a person from love, handle the reaction of someone where you're giving them something out of love and they don't know how to receive it? That is huge. Well, it's been an interesting topic because a lot of us have been given love transactionally because a lot of us grew up like myself. It was transactional love. Bars. If, if I give you, I noticed it with- um, Conditional love. Yeah, so I noticed it with, um, since my brothers had babies, and watching my parents around them, my mum is unconditionally giving love. And I'm like, wow, that's where that comes from me. She just wants to, like, I want to make, it's just that kind of love, a bit of maybe codependency thrown in there and, and all these other bits and pieces, you know, these bits and bobs. My dad, it was really interesting because he'd hold the baby and be like loving. And then the baby would like smell or poo. And he was like, oh, I don't want that anymore, but I'll take it back when it's clean. So it was like, I was watching this sort of push-pull dynamic. And then sometimes as well, like we, he, if I give you a chocolate button, will you give me a kiss? No, I'll get a kiss. And that for me was just like, it's almost a bit like, wow. yeah. And that was a lot for me to sort of sit with and see. And I was like, huh, when I'm giving, am I giving because I want something in return or am I just giving? Yeah, but what fantastic observations, like powers to you to be able to even decode that shit because you know, wow, like the fact you saw that as transactional, I'll give you this chocolate button if you give me a kiss. That's so interesting because let's face it, that's probably happened to all of us like at some point. And that is very true. It's based on the condition that you would get it. Absolutely. I think love for me now as an adult in my thirties, been married, you know, had an experience with pregnancy, which obviously I don't have children. So you know how that went. Um, for me, love is two things, and I, I'm going to label it, comes the hypocrite out of me, says you shouldn't have boxes, right? But until such a day that I can create as many words as there are in Arabic and English, I'm going to have to use the English language, guys, because let's face it, in Arabic, one word is 30 different words for that thing. English, you go to synonyms, you probably, you're lucky if you get five. So, sorry to break that bit down, but anyway. Love to me in this day and age means this, like love... I've never loved someone so quickly as when I met Rosie. So Rosie is our friend's little girl. She is phenomenal. Like I can't tell you what happened chemically or whatever. I don't know what happened, but I've never loved something so quickly the way I loved Rosie that day that I met her. The reason is because I have a huge amount of acceptance and I have a huge amount of acceptance for the condition of everything basically like I appreciate I respect I empathize with everybody that I meet and interact with now you have a backstory that I don't know about something about you I know is going to be vulnerable or sad or negative but the way I'm meeting you I'm coming at you with a load of love the instant magnetic force that is creating for me in my life now is like, I'm, a, I'm able to give that love instantaneously because I'm not denying myself of any conditioning or you know, reason why I should love something. I'm giving up and surrendering to, there doesn't have to be a reason why I like that. 
There doesn't have to be a purpose as to why I'm doing this or why I'm accepting that. I am fully accepting of a lot of things in my life and that's because of age. So when I met Rosie, the attraction that I had, the love that I had for this child was so ridiculous, but it was a reflection of me, actually. You know, I know this is all terribly bringing it back to me because I'm so self-centered and I suffer with entitlement, we all fucking do. But deeply, I feel it now. And I use that love as a, as a tool of welcoming, as a tool of like, this is where love lives. Like if you wanna, if you wanna know where love lives, it's me, like I'm right here. And it's because I've had to do that breaking down conditions, paradigms, all this kind of stuff. And when I see a child, whatever the child is, colors, hair, sex, gender, I imminently have loads of like love for this kid and, and empathy and compassion. Cause I know that kid's about to go on a mad journey, baby girl up in there. You know, every teenage girl like me, I'm like, big up you because what you're about to go through is fucking hard. There's no denying it. You're going to have hormones. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be comparing yourself. You're going to think you're fat. You're going to think you're too skinny. You're going to think you're ugly. I have so much love for you because you're none of that. You're fucking perfect. And you're exactly how you should be to be who you need to be in the future. So there's a huge thing that changed in me about love when I stopped conditioning myself to receive it. I'm worthy of it. I, this guy loved me. That means I'm lovable. I don't give a shit about this guy loving me anymore. I don't. I'm more here to set the world free. And if that causes love to, to circulate more, great. But from where I'm coming at, I need to turn up in my best self to allow these connections to happen. You know, and that that takes work. That takes work to uncondition yourself, to unprogram yourself. It takes a lot of work. Which you've clearly, clearly put a lot of work into. Allow me, Amy, I'm getting embarrassed. <laughs> No, no, seriously, like, seriously. And that's what I mean, you blew me away. I was like, who the fuck is this chick? I want to know more about her. And I just looked at you and it was just like, I could just see, like I said, like hearts just coming around you. And I was like, she just, emanates, she just emanates love. And I'm at this stage where I'm learning to love myself and start to recognize my worth and be like, it's okay to be entitled if you I know want to. Yeah, I think there's, I think, I think, thank you. Uh, firstly, like I'm overwhelmed. Um, I don't know if you can tell that, but my whole face is like, oh my God. But thank you so much for your lovely comments and your feedback actually is really important to me. Um, there's loving yourself and there's loving the situation. Let's break it down. Yeah, gun fingers in the air, everybody. That's, that's right. There is having love and acceptance and empathy for yourself and there's having love and acceptance and empathy for the situation that you are either in or about to go into. The difference is when you're operating now from a, a place of awareness, which we are, you can choose how to go into that situation. The love we had for ourselves was based on a condition that we were in before. So do you have empathy for that situation of the shit marriage? Do you have empathy for that situation of the diet problem that you had? Do you have empathy and love for the situation where you were in hospital? Do you have lump of empathy to your, to, with yourself for that car crash you were in? Are you acknowledging the situation without taking responsibility all the time? Like, oh, it's because of me this happened. Fuck all of that. Let's talk about why that situation has landed on your doorstep. Because you need to learn a lesson from that situation. That lesson carries you 
to your next level of love because you need to be made aware of wow I was in a car crash I nearly died from it from a, a allergic reaction in my life when I was 31 fully nearly died like fully my whole body went into uh, sepsis basically because my hair died and I, I was getting worried about my grays and I went to get a packet in my hair and I nearly died the reaction from my family and friends was ridiculous people were like crying their eyes out that I was going to die and I'm still like doing this weird Afshan thing where I'm like it's not true I'm not going to die it's all bullshit the reality was I was like 20% away from fucking dying my whole body would have been poisoned with the blood of that infection the empathy and love that I have for that situation there is a girl trying to cover up her greys she goes to her hairdresser she didn't get a patch test hairdresser does the job she leaves she's now having a reaction for three days into the point where she's in hospital when her her whole throat and face is closed up why did why was that situation happening to me it taught me a massive lesson this vanity shit this my hair my eyebrows my fucking tan bollocks it's all bollocks I got myself into that situation from a point of like, I don't feel good enough because I've got gray hairs. I need you to dye my hair tonight. It's my birthday. I've got a date tomorrow. Get rid of my grays. The grays didn't mean a thing to anyone but me. But because I put so much energy behind making sure I looked amazing, look at that for an outcome. Bro, I nearly didn't have no hair. They were ready to shave all my hair off. I was ready to let them do it. My request was, can you get a wig maker in so you can cut it off and then put it into a wig? But the empathy that I have now for that girl that was Afshan at 31 in that situation, my love for the situation, empathy for that version of me uh, is basically making me a better me today. Like it, I'm trying to give you an example, which is the most tangible thing I can give you, which is that one. But it's like, have love for yourself. Yes. Have love for the situation you're in as well, because it's there to teach you something to grow. If you're uncomfortable, fuck that's good for you if you don't like it good you need to grow up like you need to level up here you need to really power up on this thing you know so having love for yourself is great you know doing what you got to do for your personal self-care routines all of that jazz that's great but breaking down why you're giving yourself that love is a very important thing to do as well you know, and understanding the acceptance of like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to love myself, but it's not like, oh, look at me, I'm doing self-development, I'm loving myself. Oh, it's so great. No, it's I'm healing, I'm soothing. I'm self-soothing right now through this practice, be it yoga, breath work, prayer, charity, talking to your neighbor, cooking for someone. It's serving you to be like that. It's serving them for you to be like that as well. And you will learn at every one of those junctures, you know, take it as you wish. But it's very important to me to say that there's a differentiation to be made between loving you and the situation that you're in. You need to acknowledge that. I feel as well, like something that came to me yesterday was that the, the resilience from the situation as well. Like you said, like certain things we've both been through and had experiences. And it's like. You got through that. And yeah, man. <laughs> it was dark and it was a freaking horrendous space like there's really dark like, and I was like okay so it, I'm also it's almost like a bit of a benchmark for me when I reflect back absolutely I'm like a bit like a phoenix rising from the fucking ashes like, yep. like you know you and again having compassion for how I had to get through it 
Now, when yeah. I, one of my memories came back, uh, come up on Facebook today, and it was two years ago, and this is pretty much where my journey was beginning. And I was, and I look, normally I look back at a picture when I'm skinnier and I'm like, oh my God, you were so much skinnier and like my body's a small fewer and things come in. And today, like seeing that image and seeing this, this woman that wore this, this girl that was in, in a certain, and everyone, and I would have normally looked back and gone, fuck, I've put on a load of weight since then and shame, start shame myself. And I'm like, looking at her, like you did what you needed to do to get through that situation. Absolutely. You're a fucking Jane. You, you still turned up and you still did the work and that work for you at the time might've been yeah, overworking and ignoring your feelings and, and needing to, but then I was heavily reliant on weed and anxiety medication. And I was like, you did what you needed to do to get to that point. And now I'm like, I can respect that person there and then as well, because she's, she's cool. I want to make a statement about that. There is surviving and now we are living, Amy. Yeah. The thing that there I'm is surviving and there's living. There's surviving and we're moving into thriving. Yeah. Accepting that we are entitled to abundance and love and entitled to getting up every day and choosing how we want to live our day and choosing to feel our feelings. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes choosing, I don't want to deal with that today. And that's okay. Cause I don't have to like, today I was sitting outside in the sun eating and I keep being conscious that I eat really quickly. And I was like, you need to slow down. So I'm trying chopsticks. I'm trying chopsticks in the <laughs> hand. I'm trying, um, I'm trying like, I'm, I eat cat candid. So I flip, so I'm trying to fit. And I thought, you're even trying to force the fact you need to fucking slow down. The fact you're sitting outdoors in the sun and you've cooked a meal. Wow. You've cooked a meal. Cause this, I used to literally live, like if it was prepped and eating in like, I wouldn't give myself time to even eat. And I'm like, the fact you're even sitting outside and doing that, I was like, why don't you just enjoy that rather than going, oh, you're chewing too fast. Yeah. Like, you just, you know, you're just at this stage now. And can you just enjoy where you're at rather than still going, it needs to be better? Yeah, I think you, you, you have, you know like if anything to to sort of give headlines and surmise or whatever you want to call this part of the podcast but there's a lot of power in what you just said there and for the record some of your food pics i've seen on your insta are fucking banging like bro make me a pokey bowl any day i'm coming over just amazing like the, the way you make nutrients look is appealing so thank you whoever that is um but i think there is you're right choice choice like we have choices now we do not have to survive this everything we are doing is, is out of choice right so know that and, and be proud and happy that you're creating options for yourself life is about creating options if you just kept your mantras that basic you you would get it right you would get it right because your life is about creating other avenues other options and choice you're living that now you're living that now acknowledging yourself for sitting down and eating outside. Even the fact you know you need to eat slowly is fucking blowing my mind. I'm like, wow. Such awareness. Like, are you doing that for your digestive system to feel better? Or are you doing that to give gratitude to the food? Are you doing that? You know, what? why Why did you become aware of that? Why is that something you're noticing? It was to do with, it started my journey with teeth, which sounds a bit weird. I'm going to plug my laptop in. And then started researching why people's jaws are getting more narrow. And, wow yeah. wow and then people taking teeth out all the time you need more teeth out more teeth out but we're not solving the issue and you look back at the indigenous tribes and how our jaws used to be perfect plus no gray hair 
perfect jaw lines and amazing feet. And um, I was like, we are not chewing our food properly. So if you haven't read the book by James Nestor as well, it will blow your fucking mind because once World War II come in and tin food and stuff like that, so our palates are getting narrow, which means our arches are getting higher in the mouth, which means we're not breathing properly. And when we don't get enough breath in, we're not sleeping properly. So I'm oh like, my gosh. I know this is how my brain works, it's a lot. This is amazing. No, the, the logical path that you just described there absolutely makes that sense was, to me. That was one thing, the teeth and like, okay, I wanna re, I'm trying to restructure my jaw. Um, I've gone and had like a full scan with my teeth and I wanna have see it in a year's time. I love documenting. However, the other thing as well is when we eat really quickly, our body might not be in rest or digest mode. And most of us are like conscious of our body weight and body fat. So I'm like, oh, if you eat slower, the body goes into rest, digest. So the body will actually use it and the rest you just excrete it out naturally. Whereas if you're in a certain state, then the body goes in, is in fight, flight, freeze, and then it stores it as body fat instead. And you know, I know we need body fat for an extent. Oh my God. So yeah, it's just sort of looking at that plus. Nourish me. Come over here and nourish me with your- But then the other thing I was feeling is, um, well, this, this, for example, a banana. I was like, well, this banana, when it's growing properly, takes time. I don't want to eat it in five seconds. That's gone for a Thank whole you. process. You're right, you're I right. Want, I want to appreciate the fact that the banana took a long time. You know, time. I feel like that about olives. You know, olives have to go for a real journey before you see them packaged up to an MMN and MNS. Yep. They don't even come off the tree looking green or, or black. You know that, right? It's mad. They're all, they're all bleached and then given to us all in a packaged version. Yeah, that's, that's my sort of process with that. And then I was getting annoyed at myself for not chewing slower because you're meant to chew like 30 times or something like that. And then I was like, can we just appreciate the fact you haven't got your phone near you while you're eating. You're sitting outdoors eating. You've cooked a fresh meal and you're enjoying it that's okay to do that absolutely don't worry about how fast you're chewing right now don't you're... worry about that right now yeah of course and like I, living... I, I just laughed i thought i still it's... put so much pressure on myself to still try and do like slow down i think we're all a bit guilty of that i think for sure i think we're always chasing the next thing wherever we are like i, I could be a millionaire tomorrow and i'll still be looking for that million and one pound like it's mad we're just conditioned to do that like i don't know if it's primal or whatever but it does happen but I think the the wow in all of that is like having the time to sit down and do all of that for yourself and create an option and, and an avenue for you to do that in your working day. If it's a working day, that's your choice now. That's power, Amy. Like that's real taking agency control, bringing in like some level of like, this is for me, this is a ritual. You know, it's a real love and respect for that. I really, really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's so important to catch yourself when you're not being present and I think the experience that we met in particularly me and you like we were we were very present we were very very present nobody was sitting there really thinking about the past for too long or like thinking about the future or futurescaping everybody was there loving everybody for being present and whatever was coming up in those moments was amazing and we were all being present you know, and then when I recanter the weekend that we met or like the experience that we shared, I'm just feel full of joy and like full of happiness. I feel so refreshed because I was in the moment the whole time. I didn't see my phone until half past three that night. And I only used it to text my mum. I turned mine off. 
I was like, I amazing. I want to be because normally I love taking pictures, and again that pulls me away. But I was like, I really want to be with these people tonight. Like, I, really, I really want to receive them, and I want them to receive me. So how can I show them that I, I want to receive? And I was like, well, start with yourself. Take your phone out of the equation and, and, be, and be present. And I was like, someone's always taking pictures at some point somewhere. So I'm like, if something's meant to be captured, <laughs> but do, do you know what I mean? I just trusted the situation, and it was. It was beautiful. It but really was. Also, like one thing I wanted to say as well, like to, to people listening, like don't get me wrong, like I'm also a human, and there's other times when I'm like, I'm just going to grab a protein bar and, and be on the go. Yeah. So I, I still like, Jamie, you know I, mean? I still do. The, of course. When I get the opportunity, like say when you said about, um, can we do a bit later? I was like, I oh, do you know what, sweet, I haven't eaten. And I was like, let me just knock something up. Let yeah. Me. And I did it, and I was like, it's so easy. I was like, let me just go yeah. outside and let me be there and be present with that. And there's yeah. so much gratitude for that process. You know, it's like that story of the tap that I was telling you on Saturday, this tap doing its job. And yeah, people who were in the room with me on Saturday night, big up all of you, because you knew exactly what I was talking about. Like, I had so much love for this tap, man. This tap was just doing its job. You know, it was just there. It was a bit broken. In order for the tap to work for you, you needed to meet it in the middle, give it some support. And once you did, the tap delivered. Like, we all have tap moments, man you know but I love and appreciate the journey of even you having the goods in the fridge to go and knock something up like that of that level of nutrients wow like wow like you're keeping yourself in such a way that that is available to you that's power man like this is you know what I'm saying like my take on it is even you get into the point of yeah I can go and make a healthy meal like no questions asked amazing you know, we've got people on breadline living on nuggets and like tin, tin stuff because they ain't got choice. But we have created that and you've created that for you. And it's just like, wow, good. And this, this is one thing that did come up for me, like when you said like on your birthday and that memory. And it is mental now. We think how accessible and how cheap sugar actually is to that yeah. actually being so like this is a special occasion. Yeah. Whereas like something that like we can grab a whole pack of biscuits for like 99p now. And that to us in our culture. That will be- feed a fucking village over there in fucking Ethiopia or wherever. Like one biscuit will be divided by like 16 people and give them enough nutrients for the next four hours. Can you believe that? And then we're there like gorging them, gorging, gorging, gorging. Like what is this conditioned thing that we've got? And I love what you just taught me about the palate and, you know, our feet. And I'm just like blown away by your knowledge, to be honest with you. It's like, wow. Like, how do you even know that stuff? How... What's caused you to even look at that? It's just amazing. I just think this is so amazing. And if it is, we're trying to pro- prolong our lives. You've got people out here like Dave Asprey. Don't know if you know about Dave Asprey, but Dave Asprey's there trying to live as long as he can on this planet by doing everything as healthy as possibly possible that he can. And he documents it. And he's nuts, mate. He's absolutely fucking bonkers. Some of the shit he does, like, it's crazy. But he's... His whole ethos is I'm here to survive as long as I can. I'm going to prove it. And I'm going to do all the things that I think are healthy for me to make me live the longest. Now, I know what purpose they're serving for Dave, bro, like whatever, but we're learning from that experience that he's having, you know? And for me, it's like, wow. I I feel like for me, because I grew up with an eating disorder, now I'm about how can I make this an experience? wow my food and experience and now how can i like even the other night when they made bread like bread's been like a banned food for like years and years for me so having that bread there and i'm like how can i receive this 
and not freak out about eating bread with you. Wow. And instead, this is an experience where we're sharing together as a moment. Yeah. So for me, like, how can I make even eating? Because before I wouldn't, I didn't cook for a long time after my marriage broke down because that's something he taught me to do. With Attached. Yeah. So I would never do that. So then it was like, I didn't feel worthy of cooking my own self a meal. Wow. Now, how can I make this an experience that's just as important for me and I'm nourishing my body and I'm giving her what she needs to, and that's what I say, like even if I'm eating something which is maybe full of an absolute crap, like when I was eating all the popcorn that night as well, I was like, do you know what? My body's a G, she's, she's <laughs> gonna use this and she will either shit it out or she will use it as some sort of super fuel food. And she's like, what is this in my body? And she, and she will use that. Or she's 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 in a deficit from somewhere, so she will she'll be like in a deficit catching up. So yeah. I trust it's been a massive journey, and it's only right. really coming to. It was a big moment for me when I was I was making food, and I'm like, food's about experience, and food for me is now about giving myself love and sharing love with others. Food is love, man, all day. But rather than eating my feelings or hiding from things, so. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot eating of for the right reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. science around what I'm doing and, and yeah, health is something that I'm conscious of, but I'm also like aware, like I'm here to have a human experience and this is right now. And also showing people like there's different ways we can do things if, if we choose to, and if it's not something on your list of things to do, like that's chill as well. Like you do you, I'll do me. I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. I think you're, you're right in calling it a community experience because it really was I was in the kitchen on that conveyor belt making the bread and toasting and putting butter and peanut butter on things and you know I loved it I loved it I love to serve I love to help I love to make people comfortable I love that but what I love most is what you just said there it's like it's almost in a child when I hear people referring to themselves as she is like that's you're talking about you but you're calling yourself the third person right you're referring to yourself like a she like I do that to myself as well that's because we have empathy for ourselves now mm-hmm. and you know for those who haven't done it's a different topic different time but in a child work is very 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 powerful because a lot of our relationships with the survival things that we have like love exercise you know relationships all start from that child experience you know um and perhaps it's something we can border into in the next talk but it's very interesting to hear you say that she is a g and she's going to use this food to nourish herself whatever doesn't serve her she's going to get rid of it naturally we trust in yourself and your body to make those decisions for you is amazing because you're not conditioning it to do something you're letting it be its most fabulous self and actually trusting that this design is here to serve you. You know, I put a post up yesterday saying, take as many naked photos of yourself as you possibly can, guys. This whole body will change and develop and evolve over time. The version that you are of yourself today, version 0.3, version 0.5, version fucking 10, got on that version of you, man, and love that version of you because this version of you is going to serve your future self. You know, what you nourish it with today, whether that's love, food, nutrients, music, practices, air, the land that you choose to walk on travel is very important. And the way I see travel is completely different to most people. But another time, another topic. You are enforcing yourself to turn up for yourself in a year's time and be like, yo, babes, do you remember when you made that meal outside, sat in the sun and ate it? Look at you chewing at the pace of a fucking tortoise now. 
That's what's going to happen, Ames, in a year. You get me? So big up you, man. Huge, huge gratitude for that. Well done. Yeah, it's, it's been a journey and I'm still, there's still stuff around food that I'm working through and like the whole money paradigm and like, am I worthy to spend? I'm like, no, like just, just, just receive when you want to receive, honour what you want to do. And if, if you don't want to do something, you don't have to do it. Like, yeah. And yeah, and I, and I feel like as well, like, you know, simple cheats, like, you know, I don't know how to say this without sounding right fucking silly, but I'll just say it. But it's like simple, small, simple things like knowing you're worthy, knowing that it's all coming to you. Knowing I'm not talking fake it to your makeup. I'm not talking lie to yourself. I'm talking feel that you are that thing. Feel that you are it. Feel it. Believe it. Be it like be that. Do you know what I mean? Don't think why am I or could I be or. I'm not, well, maybe if I did, oh, like I did that thing last week and that's why it's not, no, no, fuck all that. There is something to be said about being entitled. We call it entitled like it's negative. No, bro, like you fully deserve it. You deserve the money that you want. You deserve the things that you want in your life because you deserve that. If there's no, why wouldn't you not, why would you not deserve it? What, what's the opposite of that? Look like let's reverse engineer it because person sitting there with a scarcity mindset is gonna to continue to get what they're getting. Those brave people that like to stand up and challenge, why am I feeling like that? Why do I keep getting? Why is it like that all the time? That's where you're about to, you're about to blow because you're coming, you're, you're looking at things with less of scarcity, more of demand, more of yes due to me, like gratitude, like over here, like, yeah, I'm over here, like channel that feed to me, I'm here with my big pot, send it all to me is an intention you can make. Visualizing you've got the thing that you want. You know, I want the sick flatmate. I want a really good flatmate who can do blah, blah, blah with bro. That person's gonna turn up like tomorrow. You know, there's, not, there's no denying that. It's just, why do we come at it from a place of denial to start with or scarcity to start with? What is, what is this conditioning we're breaking? You are fully entitled, man, fully entitled. And let's not allow entitlement to be a negative connotation because it's not, it's not. You know, title, title and entitlement are very important to be broken down, you know. But powers to you, man. Thank you for having me because it's been a a lot. I feel like I talked to you forever, like forever. And you know what? I love you, like, dropped you, like, this is a topic for another conversation. I was like, right, when we're scheduling this in, (laughs) I'm going to stop the recording. And um, thank you for coming on as well. But it's been a journey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let me stop this.